Jones. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Well, today I am thrilled to welcome Darrell Porter to the podcast. Darrell is a physician entrepreneur with years of experience in the business of medicine and one of the few experts with dual capabilities, he's dual threat, uh, <laughs> in developing and commercializing rapidly evolving cell therapies. Before founding his first startup, Cell Evolve, as the CEO, Dr. Porter was the head of commercial at Atara Bio, another emerging biopharmaceutical company on the West Coast, and a leader in off-the-shelf T-cell immunotherapy. Dr. Porter's held a number of roles of increasing responsibility at three leading biopharmaceutical companies, including Gilead, AbbVie, and Amgen, and he started his career at McKinsey & Company. Durrell earned his MD from the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine, where he was a Gamble Scholar and an MBA at the same time from the Wharton School. He earned his Bachelor of Science in Neuroscience from the University of California, LA. And additionally, he's on the boards of NASDAQ-listed Passage Bio, a Philadelphia-based genetics medicine company, and very fortunate to have him as a board member here at Portal Innovations. And he also serves as an advisory committee member for the Penn School of Medicine. So Darrell, you have such a unique background and set of experiences ranging from your medical training and experience in commercializing drugs at large biopharma companies and now startups and emerging companies to apply your knowledge across that whole spectrum. And I'm really excited, genuinely excited to hear more about how you navigated your journey and gain further insight and share that with our audience and downstream kind of your vision for the future. So I know that uh, our listeners are going to be inspired and, and really have the chance potentially to follow in your footsteps. So welcome to the show, Darrell. I'm honored to have you on the, on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, I mean, first and foremost, maybe you could jump right in and tell us about Cell Evolve, you know, what you're working on there and why'd you start the company? Yeah. So good, good first question. Cell Evolve is a development and commercialization platform company focused on cell therapy. And those words were chosen very carefully. Uh, and John, as you know, being a, a long entrepreneur that when you tell the story about a company, you got to choose your words very, very carefully. So, and, and those were definitely done. So, 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 but the way to think about it is we're a cell therapy company. We focus on mid to late stage development and commercialization, which is quite unique from a startup biotech perspective. And we'll get into that in a bit more detail. But your second question was why we chose to start the company. At the end of the day, cell therapy is, you know, the tip of the spear for what we now call the biorevolution. And, you know, cell and gene therapy and other advanced modalities would fall under that broad umbrella. But cell therapy is the one that is probably farthest up front. And one of the things I notice going back now, you know, five to seven years ago was the sheer volume of the product candidates that were being developed and discovered really across the world. And it became increasingly clear that there were not enough companies or business development partners or acquirers that would essentially work very closely with the inventors to turn these into approved products. Mm. 
And we saw that as both a challenge for the fields and frankly, an, an opportunity for a company like Cellevolve. And that was the, the genesis of starting the company. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and, and maybe if you wouldn't mind just stepping back and going a little bigger picture for our listeners in layman's terms, can you talk a little bit about what cell therapy is and just break down even, you talked about stage development and development to commercialization. Yes. Those two areas would be, I think, beneficial since it's such a rapidly evolving <laughs> field. In your words, how would you define cell therapy? Yeah, good question. It's it's probably one of the more common ones I get, even from folks that are in, you know, pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. or biopharmaceuticals. So the, the simplest way to describe it is, Cell therapy is taking a person's immune cells and engineering them to treat typically cancer, but also other diseases. So in other words, your classic T cells is a very important part of a healthy person's immune system. And what we do is we take those T cells either from the patient themselves or from another healthy individual, and we engineer them typically genetically and then we give them back to the person as a treatment. And most commonly today, those treatments tend to be cancer. Mm -hmm. And so in summary, you're using the patient's body and building up their immune system by removing those important elements through what probably leukopheresis or uh, some, some approach to remove the blood. And then That's you're, correct. And then outside in the lab, you're... You're kind of jacking, for lack of a better word, you're jacking up the immune muscles through through <laughs> T cells, regulatory T cells, whatever the case might be, putting it back in the body, and then you're enabling the person's immune system to fight cancer in the case of cancer. Yeah, actually, well put, John. And just to add to the, your description, which is spot on, what your immune system, your T cells typically do is they find foreign antigens and attack them. And what we're doing you know, in the industry is we're taking that capability that your body has naturally mm -hmm. and we're hijacking it. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is then genetically insert usually a binder that identifies a specific type of cell that, you know, is of interest. So if it happens to be cancer, we're looking for a specific cancer cell. So then we hijack those cells, genetically modify it and then give it back to you. Mm. And so then those cells do what they do, mm -hmm. but with a very specific marker yeah. and a guide, if yeah. you will, very for where to find it. Yeah, that's a, a very interesting way to explain it, a very elegant way to explain it as well. And maybe it would be helpful to describe further. Are there examples that are in the market today where we're seeing this breakthrough approach, use the word modality um, <laughs> and way to, 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 to treat patients? Are there examples of drugs that are out there today that would demonstrate or validate that this is a promising field? Yes, absolutely. And as I mentioned before, we're at the tip of the spear in terms of this wave of new inventions. So there are now six approved cell therapies, specifically called CAR-Ts, mm -hmm. that are now approved on the market. And the first two were approved in 2017, so just about five years ago. And there were a few others that were approved, you know, a few months back and one as recently, like two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So there are, and some of these names folks may be familiar with, but Novartis has a product called Kimraya. Yes. Gilead has, which was the second approved cell therapy, it's called Yes Carta, mm -hmm. uh, which came from a company called Kite Pharma. Mm -hmm. And all of these six products that are currently now approved in the United States treat heme malignancies, so blood cancers. Mm. 
And there's generally two areas that they're focused on right now. One is leukemias, lymphomas, Mm -hmm. and the second one is multiple myeloma. And so the multiple myeloma products, those are very recently approved. And it was won by a company called Legend Bio, which is partnered with J&J, was the most recently approved products. Yeah. So, you know, so again, six in five years. And that should give you a sense of the volume of programs that are coming. Right. And the second part of your question and the most important part is what impact are they having on patients with these particular conditions? And I'm happy to report, and this is well chronicled and recently published in Nature Medicine. So the first patients who received CAR-Ts are now 10 years out. Yes successfully cured yes. of their cancers. Yes, exactly. Right? Which yeah. is phenomenal. Right. And, and very visible in the public press as well. I Absolutely. Mean, I'm sure everybody saw that, you know, Carl June, yes. kind of one of the founders of the field, is that fair to say? That's correct. Was making the statement that they could use the word. I think, and physicians are very reluctant to use that word. Cure. My, and, yeah, that's right. And But he could unequivocally say that that has happened over that 10-year time horizon. That's so, correct. So that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And what you see in, to Carl June's credit, I think that physicians are somewhat reluctant to say cure because unfortunately cancers relapse. And so, you know, that would imply that it's not a cure if mm-hmm. a patient relapses. And so you, you don't know that until a sufficient amount of time has elapsed. And that is what led to the caution mm-hmm. that the field has, but specifically Carl June, why he didn't want to say that. Yeah. But now it's been 10 years. Yes. yes. And so I think we can safely say that these therapeutics can actually cure cancers. That's yeah, amazing and exciting. That's definitely, you know, something you can word, use the word transformative uh, Absolutely. <laughs> in tandem with. Well, maybe to get back to, you know, Salivalve and the company and your, your journey and getting underway. I know you recently closed your seed financing. Congratulations Thank on you. that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that process for you. And if you wouldn't mind just sharing, you know, a story or two around some of the high <laughs> points and, and maybe even a low point along the way. It's not, it's not easy, right? It is not easy. <laughs> you, you know this well, John. Um, thank you for the question. Question. And yes, it was interesting because we started Cellevolve. I started Cellevolve at the beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, so it was March of 2020. We're actually approaching our two year anniversary, which is amazing to me. But that should give you some semblance of what the challenge was. Sure. So, when I first started in March of 2020, essentially the venture financing community closed for business. Yes. And for those of you that either were involved or played a role in it, you'll know like everyone stopped everything Mm -hmm. for essentially about six months. And, you know, I talked to a number of potential investors at that time and, you know, they were very kind and and thoughtful. And they said, look, we don't know what's going to happen. Now, remind you, this is March and April Mm -hmm. of 2020. They're like, we don't know what's going to happen in the world. So we're not making any new investments at this time. Stay in touch, you know, check in in a few months and, you know, we'll see where we are at that point. Yeah. And, and you probably got a lot of people to be available to have those calls by Zoom because <laughs> all those executives in the VC funds were home. That's exactly right. <laughs> but they weren't acting, right? That's they exactly were right. Yeah. No, you yeah, hit the nail on the head. That's right. On. That's yeah. right. They were now available, yeah. but they were not writing checks mm-hmm. at that point. And so... What that meant is I had some time to go back to the lab, the proverbial lab. And so I just continued to build the company and build in that sense meant, you know, identifying partners, 
thinking about the strategy, identifying talent and how we were going to build the company. But in terms of fundraising, you know, at that point, I had to self-finance the company Mm -hmm. up to the point we got our first check in the door. And that happened in September. So six months later. Mm -hmm. And as we now know, when you look back, the markets opened up and opened up in a blazing way. Yes. And, and, you know, we were able to benefit from that when it started. So ups and downs, you know, I would say the thing that I didn't know, of course, first time entrepreneur, first time founder going into it is how much I needed to educate potential investors on cell therapy, as opposed to, you know, here's our approach, here's our novel invention, here's a business model, et cetera, et cetera. There was a lot of time and attention spent on like, what is cell therapy and why is the business model different? And why does it require a new kind of company? And so we were getting closer to Cell Evolve, but I spent a lot of time on those upfront questions, more than I thought, right? Because of course, if they took the meeting, that would say there was some interest there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I quickly learned, at least for the first you know, six to nine months of pitching to folks that there was a lot of education required just on what is this new modality mm-hmm. as opposed to what's Cell Evolve. Yes, yes, interesting, yeah. Did it help, did you find in that, you know, you were investing in yourself, you were betting on yourself and you being a person with many other options to take your career down, you know, several different yes. paths uh, at that point. Did it help for them to see that, you know, you were betting on yourself, you had skin in the game and, you know, oftentimes people are raising money That's right. and it's other people's money. And again, in biotech, you need other people's money. It's Correct. no one person can, <laughs> can, can get, you know, product from start to those key points, you know, into Correct. the clinic and, and beyond. But did that help being able to say, I've got skin in the game here? It did. Mm-hmm. It did. Yeah. That was an important point. And several of them asked me point blank, well, Darrell, how much have you personally invested in the company yeah. up to this point in time? And are you paying yourself a salary? Things like that really as evidence mm-hmm. and important evidence that I was betting on myself. Yeah. And so that was a very, very common question, I would say, for the first year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think just even from the investor side in, knowing that your interests are aligned and Oftentimes, just in my journey too, people always ask, well, what sets a great entrepreneur apart? How do you kind of tell early on that they're going to be the right, yes. the right individual? And, you know, one of the clues I always kind of flag out, and, and maybe it was just a function of where I came from mm-hmm. and having to kind of always be back against the wall and then burn the boats, you're all in yes. and you have nothing to go back to. That type of signal is a very strong one that I think bodes well for the type of individual that you're that you're about to invest with. So yes. so that's that's interesting to hear. And I'm I, not surprised. And let me add to that is it's interesting because you take my description of the pandemic, right? So call it I'm three, four months into it. And there were several people who said to me, and again, trying to be helpful, um, as folks usually are, they were like, you know, maybe this is just not the right time, Darrell, you should think about other things, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, of course, like they said that, and then I thought about it for like a millisecond (laughs) and I was like, no way. (laughs) (laughs) This is all in, right? We're we're guns blazing Thanks for the advice, but we're going to keep going. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, okay, let's let's go way back now, if you're okay, and you'll walk with me just to share for the audience a little bit more about your early journey and kind of what led you to here in many ways. Just talk, if you could, about 
and you're willing to about like where you grew up and maybe even who were some of your early inspirations as you began your journey? Yeah, absolutely. Fair, fair question. So I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. So I'm, I'm an Angelino as we call ourselves. And I grew up in, used to be called South Central Los Angeles. Now it's called Southern Los Angeles or South Los Angeles. They rebranded themselves, uh, which is great. So born and raised there and, you know, went to LA Unified School District. So I'm a public school student or product and decided to stay local for college. So I went to UCLA undergrad and you know, after my entire life and then college there, you know, I decided it's probably good to see other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you mentioned in your opening comment, I traveled all the way across the country and, and went to school in Penn, at Penn, excuse me. And to your point about inspirations, you know, my, my mother is probably the most notable and, and relevant one, mm-hmm. you know, true for any child. And My mom is a nurse, Hmm. so she's about to retire probably in six months or so. God bless her. Uh, She's been doing this for many, many years, Mm -hmm. but she's um, a nurse in labor and delivery. Hmm. So we had exposure to the practice of medicine very early on, right? So just through her profession, we would see things, get to know nurses and physicians and other affiliated healthcare providers. So as these things go, when you're immersed in it, you don't really think about it, mm-hmm. but it affects you, you know, quite dramatically. Sure. And that was true of my exposure to medicine through her profession. And lo and behold, you know, I had a scientific acumen and interest all throughout, right? Really from, you know, my earliest days. And I, at one point, thought I was going to be an engineer hmm. uh, because I really enjoyed math and science, okay. um, you know, in an applied way. Yeah. And then, of course, I found my way home to yep. the to the family business, <laughs> and uh, and therefore declared my interest in medicine in undergrad. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting. Yes. What was that experience like being in a different part of the country, different culture, a little different? surroundings. Did you face any headwinds along the way? <laughs> I know that's a loaded uh, question, but just, you know, what, what were some of the things that maybe shaped your path in that respect, more adversity that popped up along the way as you were, you know, p- pushing through and, and, and breaking through? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And it's one of those things where, you know, you always hear that traveling is so beneficial and spending time in other places is really eye-opening. And going to graduate school in the Northeast was just that on multiple dimensions for me. I mean, even something as simple as the distance between major cities and how quickly you could go from Philadelphia to New York mm-hmm. was eye-opening to yeah. me, right? I mean, I had been to New York before, but I'd never been to Philadelphia you know, prior to that process. Yeah. And growing up in L.A., everything's far, sure, right? So San Diego is kind of the closest big city yeah. and that's two hours away driving. And then San Francisco is like five or six hours away. Sure. So you go to Philly and New York's a train ride away, right? Right. And DC's a train ride down South. Yeah. And just as a small example, like that was really eye-opening and quite enjoyable sure. uh, for me and my classmates. I Man, we would go to New York for the weekends yeah. and, yeah. you know, hang out in the city and try to get some cultural exposure to yeah. a variety of different things. And yeah. so that that was great. I mean, that's not adversity, but that was eye-opening. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really interesting to hear you talk about that. Yeah, I mean, being from Chicago, I kind of share that same mm-hmm. feeling, you know, going to the East Coast, the yeah. density, you just don't really fully appreciate that until you're, till you're there. And even like you said, even if you're doing a episodic trip to one of those places, yes. 
you're not necessarily realizing how close it is to Baltimore or DC and, you know, even just heading on up the coast to, to Boston and so on and so forth. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So no, that was a great experience. I, I yeah. really enjoyed my graduate school experience. My fiance says this all the time. I'm one of the few people that are now physicians who look back fondly on their medical school experience. That's great. I had a wonderful time in medical school. That's great. That's yeah. good. That's I mean, good both to hear the that. people and the Why knowledge. do you think that was? I mean, you did the work as you know, I explained in your bio when yeah. we opened, you know, you had this dual path. And, and that was in parallel, correct? Correct. Do you give some credit to that surround sound of like two different like but on one hand, that would seem very overwhelming and daunting, but it almost sounds like you took energy out of that dual path. Well put, well put. I did. I'm, you know, again, at the time I wouldn't have described it this, but I'm a profoundly curious person. Hmm. And so I always enjoy learning new things. And so you talk about an opportunity to learn new things. It was wonderful to be in both of those institutions and frankly, to look across from one chair to the other. Mm -hmm. So when you're in medical school or in the medical complex, looking back on the business side of healthcare or vice versa. So when you're in the business side of healthcare and looking back on the scientific pursuit in the classic medical school or you know academic institution, that's a different vantage point. And so I really loved going back and forth mm -hmm. and looking at them from those two angles. And, you know, I mean, I just I really enjoyed all of the new insights that came from all kinds of exposure and flavors. Like I'll give you an example. When I was for those of you who've been to business school or know about it, there's a summer internship between your first and second year. And the fact that I went straight from undergrad to graduate school and therefore had not had a professional job, right. if you will. I had many jobs, sure. but not professional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the fact that folks were getting paid, I would say, standing salaries for their summer internships was mind-blowing to me and my classmates yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on the medical school side. Because when you did a summer internship and on the medical school side, you were getting paid usually nothing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. You were getting the opportunity to be exposed. That's to exactly the right. That's exactly <laughs> right. And so the fact that they were treating, forget the compensation so much, but it's more that they were treating you as an employee. And you were a real professional. That's yeah. exactly right. That was, that was eye-opening mm -hmm. to me and all of my peers, yeah. right, in medical school as one oh, small example. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Well, and so then, you know, just tracking your adventure forward from there, am I correct in saying then you took your first role at McKinsey? Was that correct. where you started? That's uh, correct. Okay. And what was that like? And maybe through that lens, how did that shape then the rest of your path? Because I would imagine that some of those experiences informed what happened after that as you entered kind of that pharmaceutical landscape? Yeah, absolutely. So after lots of hand-wringing and thinking, I decided to not pursue a residency in internal medicine, which was my chosen area had I chosen the practice, and decided to join McKinsey after being a summer intern there. So I went back to Los Angeles. So I was part of what used to be called the West Coast Healthcare Practice. Oh. So all essentially up and down the West Coast from Seattle all the way down to San Diego. And... You know, part of the thinking in going there is that, you know, profoundly curious, love the interface between business and medicine, and frankly, just solving complex challenges. And what a great way to really learn mm -hmm. and to grow professionally than going to a place like McKinsey and Company. And so it met that 
metric for sure. Mm -hmm. I, I had a wonderful time there. I got exposed to a number of different problems, business challenges globally. So I worked on the West Coast for sure, but I also had the opportunity to work in Europe as well as in Japan and uh, also across the United States. But you get to see just companies in different flavors, having different challenges, trying to solve different problems. How do you improve R&D productivity in one setting? In another setting, trying to figure out, is this a therapeutic area that we should go after? It looks attractive from outside looking in, but we're not quite sure how to go into it as another problem that we dealt with as a consultant. Yeah, got it. And then and from there, you're back on the West Coast. What triggered your next step thereafter from McKinsey? So that definitely seems to be the beauty of that type of vantage point, mm -hmm. particularly coming right, right out of graduate school Correct. and making the commitment to not practice, but to go down this path where you could be leveraging, you know, your, your full suite of academic yes. training, even on the business side, but the variety of problems That's right. and maybe the beginnings right. of some pattern recognition around how, although disparate companies with different problems, maybe picking up a skill set that would probably be very valuable as you as you took your next step thereafter. What happened next after McKinsey? Yeah, what happened next is I went to Amgen. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, it was really trying to land in a role that was able to leverage both of my skill sets, you know, on the business side, problem solving, as well as my clinical education. And I joined corporate development. So I went to business development and I was called corporate development at Amgen at the time. And that was a perfect synergy. So, you know, of course, trying to think about which companies to buy and which companies to partner with, but also analyzing the scientific merit and benefit of the technologies that they have. And so it was a perfect combination for my background at that point in my career. And I was very fortunate that literally within the first few days of me joining Amgen, one of the questions that was put in front of me was, you know, take a look at this company called Immunex. Hmm. And uh, for those of you that have been around the block and, and been in the space for a while, you will know that Amgen bought Immunex mm -hmm. at the time, was the largest biotech Landmark. acquisition in history. Landmark deal. Yeah. Correct. And the main product that came from that was called Embro. Yep. And so I worked on that acquisition from idea all the way to post-merger integration. Wow. So that was my full-time job for two years. Wow. Yeah. And so you're talking about seeing everything. Yeah. I got to see all aspects of what it takes to acquire a company. I mean, all the way from presenting to the board mm -hmm. uh, to going to New York City to present to Wall Street analysts. That's amazing. I mean, not that I presented, but I was there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I was supporting the executives at the time. Yeah. But I got to see the whole thing and then all the way to post-merger integration. Right. So how do you actually combine two companies and you know, personnel decisions, facility decisions, which programs to keep, mm -hmm. which partnerships to keep, all those things. And so, you know, just what a wonderful, I was very fortunate, right? I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Uh, but that was a wonderful journey. It's pretty cool, though, to see one person's impact and how that acquisition led to a product that's helping, you know, a lot of, you know, RA patients and Absolutely. other products that patients that experience yeah. adverse inflammatory diseases, right? And so, like, is that an inspiration for you, it too? It is. Yeah. It is. I'm glad you brought that up yeah. because it is very similar to where we are right now with cell therapy and gene therapy. And so, 
they're very analogous. And I'll give you one specific example. I can remember like it was yesterday where there were many, many people in the industry that was questioning the potential impact of these new therapies. And so, you know, I'll give you a quick story on it. We at Amgen at the time used to assess who could go hostile on Amgen at the time. And so it was like, well, which companies could just say we want to buy Amgen, even if we were not interested in being bought. Mm -hmm. And it it was an annual process. And the same companies would always come back. It would be Merck, Pfizer, J&J. And J&J couldn't do it because they had a partnership with Amgen. And it would likely be, you know, antitrust issues. Mm -hmm. But the bankers would always say that, well, it could be Merck or it could be Pfizer, but they're not interested. And we would be like, well, what do you mean? They would be like, they don't really believe in biologics. Mm, mm-hmm. They actually don't think these are meaningful inventions right. and that they're going to have an impact yeah. on the market, right? And of course, we're sitting there like, are you kidding me? Yeah, right. But that's what they believed, yeah. right? And the, one of the famous quotes that was shared at that time was, no patient will inject themselves at home. Mm-hmm. And here we are. Turns you know, out, turns out lots of people will do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Well, it's funny, you know, the audience can't see your face, but your face is lighting up around the challenge that goes with someone saying, you can't do that. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and you strike me as a person that's faced that a few times and you said, you know what? I can do it and, that's and right. you do it. So that gets me even more excited about Salivalve and yeah, what, what's you. happening next. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Well, then maybe switching gears a little bit, we'll come back to your journey yep. in a bit. I know you went on then to uh, AbbVie and it'd be great to hear a little bit about Gilead and Kite. And yep. You mentioned them in yep. your product uh, story yes. around that emergence of cell therapy and that deal. But before we go there, it would be good to kind of maybe step down a little bit different tract. And that would be you and I talk a lot about the distribution of the innovation landscape, particularly across academic institutions. And I know you're on the board at Passage Bio, for example, in the Philly area. And what we learn about what happened at Penn and Mm -hmm. cell therapy, a couple key faculty, you know, we mentioned uh, Carl June, Jim Wilson, a few others that, you know, have been enormously impactful. One person can be very impactful around medicine, the impact on patients, but even on the economy around Philadelphia. And maybe my question to you is, what can we learn from that Mm -hmm. as we think about ecosystems? system building. Um, And again, as as I mentioned, we talk a lot about this as we have a lot of parallel interests in how on one hand, you're seeing a lot of, you know, these available cell therapies that need to get to market, but they need that. Your skills, your platform, and your approach to bring these novel therapies to market. Um, What what do you think can be learned about what happened in Philadelphia around the right steps to strengthen an ecosystem that can do more of that on a sustainable basis. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say there are a few critical ingredients to essentially duplicating the success of the Philadelphia biotech complex. And, you know, and John, you live this and Portal is really an embodiment of, of duplicating this for a number of spaces, most notably here in Chicago. First off, you clearly need the academic institution and some world-class principal investigators that are creating some wonderful new technologies. The beauty of the current space and the set of technologies is that 
the information dispersion and the information and new technology adoption curves are moving faster than ever. And so they're more widely distributed than they ever have been in the past. So that's number one. So a lot of institutions here in Chicago, you know, Northwestern, Rush, you know, they're doing wonderful work, right, on really any modality, but definitely in cell and gene therapy, my current area of interest. So that's one. The second thing that is happening is because of their technologies and their ability to treat patients mainly with transplants, so stem cell transplants, they actually have more tools and engineering capabilities available to them than they have in the past. So, you know, before it was more in the labs, right? And then it would have to go to a small company in order to, you know, be transformed into right. a potential product candidate. Yes. What's happening now is that they can actually move farther and farther down the fields than they have historically been able to. And so they're product candidates as yeah. opposed to a scientific idea. Yes. And so that's the second change. Interesting. And then the third one is just the sheer amount of capital that's available that allows for those product candidates and those inventions to be turned into companies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you start to piece all those things together, all of a sudden you have the raw material for an emerging ecosystem. Right. Right. Or an exploding ecosystem if it's already emerging. Yeah. The more I listen to you talk to just the interesting evolution there. So part of what you're saying is that the academic institutions with those new tools are pushing further into the what historically is that commercialization That's pathway. Right. It also strikes me that the delivery of a cell therapy yes. is different than the delivery of how you treat a patient with a with a small molecule. Again, for Correct. the audience, a small molecule is just yeah. pills and pills. You know, drugs that yeah. you've taken, you know, over the course of your life to aspirin. Think about it that way. That's right. Whereas with a cell therapy, usually it's you know more of a delivered through injection infusion, or, or yeah. infusion, you know, over time, and it's usually in a in a hospital type setting. Yes. And so it strikes me that the advantage to the academic institutions is starting to swing in their favor to a degree, and proximity of the patient to the company or the people that are actually providing the, right. the drug becomes more important. Because the more I learn about cell therapy too, whereas before you've got a manufacturing plant that's uh, making you know right. multi-ton quantities of, of your drug product that gets turned into the pill and then ultimately goes into a bottle yes. that the pharmacist you know delivers to the patient. In this case, it's the patient is the person that's producing the cure in that's the right. sense that Back to your earlier description, you're, you're taking blood out of their body, you're going into the lab and you're doing some workup with it and you're reinserting it. So proximity That's of right. patient to the hospital setting, it seems like everything is moving. My, the, I know it was a long-winded way of saying it, it seems like everything is moving early stage and to the patient and even more localized. Like that's a word that pops up in my mind too, is it's like local well and becoming more personalized. Yeah, I, that's accurate. And I think that's well put. It is one of those things. So you, you touched on it and just to build on your point. So for cell therapy specifically, this applies to other modalities as well, but cell therapy as in this example is you have this concept, what I call bi-directional movement of products and information. So you take a person's blood you withdraw it, you treat it in some capacity, depending on the, the therapy of interest. You ship it to some facility, and that facility then genetically modifies it of some approach, and then they send it back. Mm -hmm. So the distance 
and the time that it takes to go from the patient to the manufacturing facility and back is critical. Yeah. The shorter, the better. Mm -hmm. And therefore, to your point about the localization of manufacturing, treatments, you know, genetic engineering facilities, that's beneficial because every day matters, especially in a setting where a patient has cancer, literally every day matters. Sure. And so, you know, something that can be delivered in three days compared to something that takes 21 days sure. for whatever reason. Yeah is a very, very big difference yeah. in your opportunity to change a patient's life. Very interesting. Yeah. And maybe just to follow on just around this distribution and localization, both at the patient level and at the ecosystem level mm -hmm. that you're describing, you use the term I've heard a few times, democratization of innovation. And yes. maybe can you characterize that or define what you mean by that? Yeah. Good question. It, it means essentially that there are more innovations that are more broadly distributed by newer entrants than ever before. So to say it differently is that you have many more academic institutions with up and coming talent that are developing potentially transformative therapies all over the world. Yeah. And before there was, you know, call it a handful of institutions. These are household names that people know, MD Anderson, UCSF, Stanford, Penn, mm -hmm. um, Memorial Sloan Kettering. You know, those were your household names for interesting cell and gene therapies. I think today we can say there's probably a list of 40 or 50 institutions mm -hmm. in the United States that would fit at the same stage mm -hmm. of any of those players, yeah. right? And I think that's a good thing. And that's a good thing both for patients at the end of the day, mm -hmm. but also for Celebolf and for Portal. Mm -hmm. Because what that means is that you have all these potential technologies and product candidates and scientists that are seeking partners yeah. to help them transform these inventions into products. Right. Right. And it maybe has to go through a company before it becomes a product. Sure. But, you know, that's the ultimate destination. And those are more widely distributed today than ever before. And we're not going back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, very, very interesting. And I, I can sometimes I describe kind of this distribution in many ways being seeded by the fact that a lot of these academic institutions around the world have really tried to redefine their business model on, on recognizing that their key ingredient for success is with eminence is their uh, the research faculty. That's right. And more of the research faculty that they're aiming to try to recruit and bring into their ecosystem are of that phenotype yes. from those household names that you <laughs> talked about. And it almost, uh, it's probably a dumb, you know, uh, analogy here, but it, it's almost like, you know, when you go back in time, you think about college football, you mm -hmm. know, and college football was dominated by a couple of key powerhouse yes. uh, universities that year after year. And I guess you could say the same is true now, <laughs> but, but it, 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 let, let, hear me it's out. It's changing a little bit. <laughs> hear yes. me out. There are new names that are popping up on the horizon yes. that you never even knew the college existed before. That's right. And so this democratization and a, a lot of the, the ways they were able to attract that four or five-star recruit was they invested very heavily into their, yes. into their athletics infrastructure. They hired a great coach. They built a big stadium. They decorated the locker rooms. They put in weight rooms and practice facilities. Yeah. 
And lo and behold, that brought in a whole new demographic yes. that became then a self-fulfilling prophecy that allowed wow. these football teams, you know, coming out of places <laughs> that you just never really thought <laughs> could could be in the in the national championship. Yes. And that's kind of what's happening in innovation. I would agree with that. Right I think now. that's a great I think that's a great analogy. I agree and with so you. So it's fun to watch, you know, these underdogs mm-hmm. start to pick up their game. And that's not to give I mean, you're still gonna pay homage to Alabama and you know the, the that's right. Clemsons and you know the <laughs> Notre Dames of the world. But you know the the reality is it's a much bigger competitive landscape, which I think keeps all those institutions at the top of their at game, At the top too, of their game, that's which right. Is, which is cool to yeah, see. Yeah, I think that's a perfect analogy. Well, one of the things that, you know, as you keep talking about the future with cell therapy and just this evolving model that CellEvolve is helping to lead, it seems that even now we know that one of the key constraints to commercialization at scale of all those, especially with an increased number of truly transformative therapies, is talent. Yes. And we already see the war for talent today, but it's only going to get harder, as you imagine, that as you see success with some of these early programs, you're going to need to make more material and you need to manufacture, you know, more, more, more yeah. stuff. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what your thoughts are on how this could be a real opportunity to open up access? You used the word immersion yeah. uh, early on and exposure. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in, you know, being inspired through immersion and connection mm-hmm. opens up your pathways. And so is this an opportunity as you move into the next phase of the the biorevolution to invite a whole new sector of talent into the the landscape of biosciences? And how would we enable that to occur? And any ideas or thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing we haven't touched on, I obviously mentioned the pandemic, but one of the positive outcomes from the pandemic is this whole concept of hybrid work, flexible work environment, distributed work, uh, whatever you may describe it as. But what that has led to, if you combine the ability to work in different locations, you know, with regardless of where the headquarters happens to be located, as well as the democratization of innovation, that means that from a talent perspective, you can entertain slash build slash develop talent in areas that were off the radar before, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, not that Chicago's ever been off the radar, but Chicago hasn't historically been a new biotech creation hub. I mean, obviously there's well-established players here, obviously with Abbott being the most notable. Sure or now AbbVie, but in terms of new companies and biotechs, like that hasn't always been the case, but with now Portal here and democratization of innovation, as well as companies that can lean on Portal as a facility, Mm -hmm. but also as an incubator and a platform for tapping the talent pool in Chicago, that opens up a whole wave of new opportunities, Mm -hmm. both for the companies, but also for the emerging talent. Mm And if you replicate that across the country, then you could easily see there's 15 to 20 markets, whereas before you wouldn't have thought about having a facility or an office in Chicago, whereas now you should, right? I mean, forget could, you Mm -hmm. should nowadays do that in order to tap into just some wonderful talent that happens to be in this market. And for whatever reason, you know, they want to stay here. Yeah. And that's 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 great. Great, great. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. 
from Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. Great, great. And what are your thoughts too, just to even digging deeper around, you know, I'm a true believer that diversity is critical for innovation to happen. Yes. All, all key transformative innovation happens at the nexus of different disciplines, yes. people with different backgrounds, yes. institutions with different types of skills and so on and so forth. And, you know, I just wonder what your thoughts are around what companies can do, even what Portal can do in, in using your example to create the conditions so that we're welcoming you know, a more diverse workforce yes. that maybe otherwise doesn't see themselves as part of that future. Like when yeah. maybe a, someone in high school that's saying biotech, I don't know what biotech is, but if they're not connected to it or they're not immersed in it, they're not exposed to it, then they're saying that's not for me. And we know that Although you're a scientist, I'm I'm a business guy, so I spent my whole career in biotech working mm-hmm. with scientists, but as a business person. So I think for people that aren't scientists, it's even more of a question, like why yes. would I connect to that? I don't I don't really understand it. I don't really know how to to do that. Are there any thoughts you have around how we can be more effective at diversifying on every level, you know, the talent that we're seeing come into uh, the industry? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think on that one. And I believe I saw that you were doing something in this area, as we are as well. So we're simpatico on this thinking, even though we haven't had this conversation, is exposing younger and younger students to this space is, back to your point about immersion, Mm -hmm. is like just to see what this is and this being defined as life sciences or biotech Mm -hmm. um, writ large. And, you know, going all the way down to even elementary school, depending on, you know, what your interests are and and what you'd like to focus on, but starting early Mm -hmm. and really showing that this is a viable profession, you can have an impact on, you know, the world through life sciences and STEM as a, as a discipline. Yeah. And so, you know, having exposure to folks like yourself or your portfolio companies here at Portal, I think that's a wonderful way mm-hmm. to diversify the the talent pool. And I think the second point is again, I know we keep going back to this, but being in different geographies mm-hmm. makes a big difference, right? So, if 20 years ago it was Boston and San Francisco, right? Maybe San Diego. But now you're starting to see these emerging life science clusters really all over the world. Clearly, Chicago, Atlanta is starting to emerge. North Carolina clearly is a big hub. And so the fact that people that are located in those geographies can start to see and get exposure to life sciences as a potential career, I think, is positively beneficial to everyone. Yeah. Well, I was just getting back to your seed round too. I was particularly excited to see, you know, the investment by Jumpstart and Marcus Whitney. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? But seeing success, you know, and and seeing in the case of Marcus, you know, bringing in a person of color to partner. And that to me is such a strong signal and a story that needs to be told at a much higher level. But maybe you could just talk about how that's gone so far and how you found him and how that was part of your overall capital raise journey. Yeah, absolutely. So Marcus, first of all, it's it's great. Marcus is on our board and uh, Marcus Whitney, who is one of the founders of Jumpstart Nova and our co-lead investor in our seed round and also partner with Hibiscus Bio and Chris Jeffers. 
Marcus and I met maybe about a year ago. And I was introduced to Marcus by a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Fassberg, uh, who is now executive vice chairman at Oppenheimer hmm. uh, Healthcare Banking. So he connected us. And, you know, Marcus and I hit it off immediately. That's the beauty. You know this, John, from experience, but that's the beauty of pitching. And when you connect with someone, it's usually instantaneous, Mm -hmm. right? It's in that first conversation, you feel something. And, you know, it's like, I like what you're doing. I'm interested in you. I love the story. And that was absolutely the case when I pitched to Marcus. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I could see that he got it. He got it immediately. And frankly, I would say faster than many investors in biotech. So Marcus hasn't historically spent a lot of time in biotech. He's been in healthcare, but less in biotech specifically. But he got what we were doing faster than most, probably because he hadn't spent as much time. Sure, really don't need to rewire him from the old way. That's exactly right. And so so that was great. And, and, you know, and it's fast and furious. Usually when someone is interested, they move quite quickly. And Marcus is no exception. Uh, He moved really quickly, did diligence, and, um, you know, came to the conclusion that he wanted to lead the round. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a great story. Well, well, we'll be wrapping up here with a couple of remaining questions, but I just wanted to reconnect the dots back as promised. You know, you after Amgen, you kind of spent quite a long time at AbV, right? Mm-hmm. And then went on to Gilead. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the Gilead kite transact. Was that an element, a stepping stone also that kind of increased your conviction around what you're doing now with Salivalve and just maybe a couple tidbits around that experience? It was the genesis of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was literally where I got religion, as I like to say, (laughs) around cell and gene therapy. So the short story is Gilead, for those of you that are not familiar with it, Gilead is an antivirals powerhouse, uh, largely focused on HIV is where it really cut its teeth and transformed what was a death sentence into a chronic condition. God bless. So John Martin, who is essentially the founder, he's yeah. not formally yes. the founder of Gilead Sciences, but he passed away recently. Yeah. And so may he rest in peace. But, yes. um, you know, was CEO for 25 years and just really transformed that area. Mm-hmm. And then from HIV moved to hepatitis C. Right. And so with Savaldi and Herboni, most notably. And, you know, I only tell you that story because the company was seeking to diversify, mm-hmm. right? They already had a small footprint in oncology mm-hmm. uh, with a product that is now called Zydelic. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's a small product for CLL. Mm. But they were trying to expand their footprint. And so it was like, hey, maybe cell and gene therapy is an area of interest. And so a group of executives, me included, did essentially a project over a year and talked to a number of companies, talked to a number of scientists with cell and gene period. And, you know, ultimately all of us got conviction that this was an area of interest and then secondarily moved to what's the entry strategy. And we landed on an acquisition as the entry strategy. And then ultimately it was Kite. There were only two leading companies at the time that were sizable enough and had kind of the full suite of capabilities. And it was Kite and Juno, but Juno had already partnered up with Celgene at that Mm -hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Well, that's that's inspiring. And again, just even you're talking about John Martin. I mean, you're the next John Martin. I mean, he came out of <laughs> Bristol, right? I mean, out of big pharma. Yeah, that's and then right. Look at his pathway. And so 
it's really, I'm really excited to watch the next steps in your, your journey. Can I just say one thing about John Martin and Gilead? So, you know, especially now that we're building a company and my leadership team, we always talk about kind of no reruns. So you can't come to Sell Evolve and repeat what you did at an old company, mm-hmm. like just full stop. Yeah. But clearly you should take some of those lessons, of but course. we're trying to build something new. Mm-hmm. So the one of the, the lessons that I take with me into this current chapter is from John Martin, mm-hmm. right? So one of the things that John Martin really focused on was accountability. Mm-hmm. And so much so that you wouldn't call a function like global marketing. What you would say is John's team. Okay. So they didn't call it by interesting <laughs> the function. It was your it was your name. Okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so like that was how accountability was embodied in yeah. the organization. You owned it. You owned it. Yeah. Right. It was always about you. And so that's one of the many, many lessons I take with me. I like that. going forward. I like that. And I like that you're not building a nostalgic uh, account. It's not a retro. <laughs> you're you're it's pure future. But yes. yes, you have to port the skills and experiences right. that you picked up that you can now apply. In a different way. Um, just in closing, any key areas outside of work, any comments around how you keep a balance? It's a lot going on, right? Absolutely. As you know, the entrepreneurial journey is not one for the faint of heart, as they say. So one of the things I do, and and I'm sure you're simpatico with this, is you know, you gotta take care of yourself and you have to recharge your battery. So every morning I meditate and I work out. Hmm. And, you know, both of those are critical. The days that I don't do both of those, I feel it. Mm. And I feel it throughout the day. You know, my mind is less sharp. Um, I'm just not as clear in my thinking. And so those are mission critical. Like I absolutely do it. So for for exercising, I run and I bike. Okay. Uh, those are my two shows. And That's activities. awesome. Yeah, Good I for really you. enjoy Good that. Good job. Good job. Yeah. And my last question would just be kind of um, looking ahead. And also looking back, what would you say to the next generation of future Durrells? How, how do we, you know, what, what what words of advice do you have as they're getting started on their path, whether it be somebody in grade school or high school or even in college that are maybe looking to chart a similar course? Yeah, good, good question. I, I would just say stay curious. Hmm. I think that one of the things that has been quite notable during my journey and, and specifically the Cell Evolve journey is how the field is changing so fast, but people's thinking about the field hasn't changed, mm-hmm. right? And so I find folks are like a few clicks behind, mm-hmm. right? It's like the field is actually over here now yeah. and they're still thinking it's, huh. you know, back there. Right. And part of that happens is because you're not staying curious. Yeah. And I think for younger folks coming up, the pace of change is just going to quicken. And so in order to stay on top of, if not ahead of where your chosen interest and area is, just stay curious, continue to learn, get exposure to new things, you know, shift your thinking when you're faced with new facts and new data and uh, you'll be good. Oh, that's fantastic advice. And uh, Darrell, it really, it's been a true pleasure speaking with you today. I really am grateful for our friendship yeah, and our partnership. Here, and I look forward to more chapters ahead in working together. So can't thank you enough for the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your 
comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.